All right. Well, good morning, everybody. You guys want to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4? 3. 3. Colossians chapter 3. As we continue, this, this morning will be our last message in our sermon series entitled Profound Mystery. Next week we'll have some sort of Christmas themed sermon. I recognize that each one of these messages, especially last week, the horror that I felt in my soul when I realized it was a 50-something message, minute message, was, all right, that should have been two messages, not one. So I know we're packing a lot in. But I am hearing lots of good things from many of you. Elspeth and I had a conversation yesterday that we wonder if this is uh, a series of messages that we've gotten more um, conversations with the church about maybe than even any of the other messages that there have been. Marriage is an important thing. And so I pray this is helping reshape, reform, motivate all the things that have to happen for our marriages to function the way God has called them to function. So this morning we continue our series, and men, it is our turn. So buckle up. I'm going to be making eye contact. I want to see notes being taken, or I'm coming after you. <laughs> it's much easier to preach boldly as a man to a bunch of men than it was last week. <laughs> It's a good thing the authority is in God's word and not in mine. So, so here we go. Colossians chapter 3. The reason that we're having this series is we are pausing in our trek through the book of Colossians. And we get to verses 18 and 19 where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So men, we're focusing on verse 19 this morning. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I think in this verse, men, we find one command. It's put in the positive and then it's put in the negative. The command is for husbands, what are we to do? Love our wives. And what are we not to do? Be harsh with them. Those two are polar opposites. What I want you to notice first, men, is it seems from this passage that there is a unique love that we are to have for our wives that is different than the love that we have for all other women. There is a distinct love, a certain type of love that should be restricted for your wife and your wife alone. So yes, love your neighbor as yourself is true, but here God seems to be drawing our attention to the reality that there's a specific type of love that we are to have for our wives and that this type of love will be corrupted or marred any time that we are harsh with them. The word harsh is the word for bitter or irritated or getting angry. So men, I know that I can look every one of you in the eye and we have this in common. We are prone to get irritated with our wives. Some of you aren't looking at me right now. <laughs> but it's true. We are prone at times to get bitter at our wives. And at times even to be angry and harsh. 
And I assume that God puts that in here because he knows this is how we are prone to fail. (laughs) So he calls us out on it. He could have picked other things. He calls us out on this one because he knows that anger is diametrically opposed to love. They cannot both exist at the same time. And he tells us, don't get angry. Instead, love. Now, I want to give us a little heart background. We got to go back to the beginning to understand how this all began, why God has to address an angry, irritated heart, a harsh attitude in the book of Colossians. So flip back to Genesis 3 with me. Head on back to Genesis 3. For some of you, I know you know this. For others, this might be something new. But I believe it is very foundational. And I personally find it very helpful to study this to find out why is it that I can be so easily harsh with the person that I am called to love dearly. So Genesis 3, you guys know the scene. God creates Adam, God creates Eve. He puts him in the garden. He says... The entire earth is your playground. Just stay away from one tree. Eat it all. Just don't eat from the one. The generosity of our God. And of course, what we do with that is we jack it up. So here's what happens. Genesis 3. I'm going to start in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That's important. He's there with her. She eats. And then it says, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. So this, my friends, is an illustration, men. The very first illustration of a man being harsh with a woman. I think he is harsh with her in two ways. He blames her. He blames her. And then he betrays her. Adam is in the garden with her. They've never experienced marital conflict in any way. Perfect harmony. And for the first time, she feels the pain of being blamed and betrayed. He blames her for what happened, even though he was right there with her and did nothing about it. And he betrays her, using her as a scapegoat to try to get off the hook with God. Men, if you type in your ancestry.com, give them your DNA. It goes back to Adam. Your heart DNA is to blame and to betray. Betraying may be a harder one for us to get our minds around, but I still think it's relevant. You can figure that out this week as you study this verse more, but definitely blaming blaming, saying things like, if only she would, or if only she wouldn't, how many conflicts are 
started by those phrases. So husbands, I just want to begin by telling us we need to be very aware and acknowledge that our sin nature is bent towards being harsh and blaming our wives for the problems that we have in our relationship or in the home. Whether we say it or not, we need to realize there's something stirring in there that wants to say uh, the woman as opposed to owning it on our own. So there's some bad news. Let me give you more bad news. Look at verse 16. Genesis 3, look at 16. More bad news. This is the curse that God puts on man and woman because of the fall, because of their sin. Verse 16, to the woman he says, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's one part of the curse. The second is this. Your desire shall be for your husband or against. Maybe your Bible says that in the footnote. Your desire, because of the curse, because of the fall, your desire will be against your husband and he shall rule over you. So ladies, not to go back to you again, sorry, but you need to realize there's something inside of you because of the fall in your sinful DNA that is against your husband leading you. That is against you wanting to submit to him. And guys, here's our bad news. And he shall, that's us, rule over you. Now, I think the, rule, the words there, rule over, is not a good thing. I think it's bad, and I want to explain why. The same exact phrase is used in chapter 4, verse 7, when talking about Cain and Abel. So if you want to flip over there, this is God talking to Cain. And he says in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Listen, its desires, the same phrase we just saw, it sins, it sins desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain is to rule over sin. The same word is used there as the man will rule over the wife. Listen, if I try to rule over my wife the way that I try to rule over my sin, it's not going to be a pretty picture, right? You guys know we fight sin. We battle sin. We do war against sin. We dominate sin. And I think that's part of the curse on us when it comes to our wives. We will want to dominate the wife and then the wife will not want to submit. So do you see why you have a recipe for disaster? You got this couple together. They're both sinners. Her role is to submit. His is to lead lovingly. But he wants to dominate and she doesn't want to submit. So no wonder there's there's messes in marriages, right? Because it all gets messed up because of the fall, because of the fall. So I just wanted to see this so we wouldn't be surprised when we find it difficult to figure out how to do this thing called marriage. Listen, it's a journey. I've been married for 138 years. <laughs> 27, going on 28, is that right? I can't remember, something like that. It's a journey, you're changing, she's changing, kids come, kids go, life circumstances change. You're constantly in motion and trying to figure out how to live together, bringing your sinful nature into it and wanting to please God. What do you expect? It's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult, which is why so much of what I've said and what God's words has said up to this point is that our marriages must be saturated in grace. They have to be. So when you're trying to figure this out together, you don't kill each other along the way. All right. So that's hopefully lays a little bit of a foundation. Now I need you to go to Ephesians 5. Guys, take notes. I'm going to run through some of this stuff. There's so much here that we could say. Ephesians 5 where we get the most clear, we started here a few weeks ago, but we get the most clear uh, picture of marriage. And I'm going to walk through this, men, for us in a way that I pray is just 
so motivating for us to live in the way that God's called us to live as husbands and as men, just as men even. So here we go. Ephesians 5.22. I want to start here. Ladies, a bit of review for you mixed in as we jump into the men here. So Ephesians 5.22. You guys there? If you're there, say, got it. All right, I hear lots of God. It's good. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as, pay attention to that, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should submit in everything to their husbands. So what I want to do right there is just draw up the word head. We're going to talk about three key words as we work our way through this passage this morning. The first one is that he is to be the head. The husband is the head. He is the Lord. So the role of the husband is to be the head of the wife. And then you see the phrase, even as Jesus is the head of the church, even as. So there's some kind of similarity between my headship over Elsabeth and Jesus' headship over the church. And we need to figure out, men, what that is. What, is the, what are the similarities? What is it about Jesus' headship over the church that I'm to emulate? And so rather than just guessing what those similarities are, what do we do, church, when we have a question and we're trying to find the answer? Do we make up an answer? We look. So that's what I did this week. I said, all right, where else in Ephesians? Let's start there. Do we see the word head? It's there twice. And I think it's clarifying to what it means for us to be the head, men. So go to chapter one of Ephesians. Chapter one, I got to jump into the middle of a sentence because you know how Paul writes. One sentence is four paragraphs. So we got to jump in here. So I'm going to jump in actually to the end of verse 19, Ephesians one. Jumping in here, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age, the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as, here's our word, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so I'm trying to understand how does the word head function in that paragraph in a way that I should emulate. And so here's what I see when I read this. He talks in verse 21 about Jesus being given rule and authority and power and dominion so that everything ends up under his feet with him as the head. So I think there's some similarity here in that as Jesus is the head of the church, as he rules over the church as he expresses dominion or leadership over the church. The husband is to be the head and to express some measure of leadership or dominion over his wife and his household. Does that make sense? So I'm connecting those dots and I'm saying, I think there's a similarity there. The other time the word head is used in chapter four, verse 15. Four, verse 15. Here's what it says. You guys there? Four, 15. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, which we know that means speaking Christ in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. There's our word, the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so what do we take from that? Jesus is the head of the church in that he brings, look at the language of the text. I'm just trying to mimic the language that's here in verses 15 to 17, 16. He brings and joins together as head. He brings and joins together the church, equipping them so that the church does its part. Each part of the church works properly. So I read that and I go, okay, that means there's something about my headship in my home over my wife that should bring us together so that she's equipped to work properly in the ways that God has called her to work. Does that make sense? These are important things, guys. We got to believe this and let it get down into our, our, our practices and our lives and our hearts so that it functions. It seems that the husband, for me to be the head, for you guys to be the head, even as Christ is the head, we need to feel some responsibility to lead our wives and join together with our wives so she is properly equipped to help the church grow and be built up. Does that make sense? Husbands, we should feel this. The ultimate responsibility for leading our wives in a Godward direction is on us. And so we do our part and we should feel that responsibility. We should take initiative, even as Jesus took the initiative in preparing the church for the works that he has for them. We take initiative to do the same. I like that word initiative. Guys, I think we should all just say the word initiative. Initiative. That, that's it. That, that's headship. It is us taking the initiative. This is why God goes straight to Adam when he eats the fruit. He bypasses Eve and he goes knocking on Adam's door and he holds Adam responsible. So husbands, when there is an issue between you as a couple and God or your wife and God, he's coming to you first. God is coming to you. And when there's an issue in marriage, God is going to you first. We don't have a choice. We can't say, yeah, that's okay. Talk to her. Uh-uh, it's on us. We ultimately are the ones responsible for the health and the maturing of our wife in this way, in the equipping that God has called us to. So husbands, the question is not whether we are the head or not. We are. The question is, what kind of head are you? Are you a blockhead? Or are you the kind of head that functions in leading our wives in a Christ-like direction so they're equipped to use their gifts to build up the church? So what does God do next? In this passage here, what God does next is he shows us plain and simple what it looks like for you and I to be a Christ-like head over our wives. It's plain and simple in here. At least plain and simple to understand. Practice is a whole nother animal. But he uses one word, actually. I love it. God knows we are simple people. So he uses one word to sum up what we are called to do. And he uses it three times. So let's look at our Bible, guys. Three times. Here it is. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands should love their wives. 
Guys, you're circling this in your Bibles, I hope. Underlining it. Verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife. Do you see it? It's three times there. The main controlling verb that defines and describes what our headship should look like is the word love. Everything in between these three verses fills out what loving, husbandly headship should look like. So you've got three pieces of bread. You've got a top piece in verse 25. You've got a bottom piece in verse 28. And then you've got a piece of bread stuck in the middle, which is just like a Big Mac. Two sort of all beef patties. Special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a trifold sesame seed bun. You probably can't really see it where you are, but there is a middle bun. I want this to go down, men, as the Big Mac sermon. Because I'm loving it. Three pieces of bread, each one representing those verses. Husbands, love your wives. Then he's going to tell us a little bit about it. He's going to give us some meat. Then he's going to say it again. Husbands, love your wives. And he's going to give us a little meat on how to do that. And then he's going to tell us again. Another piece of bread. Husbands, love your wives. And then he's going to tell us how to do it. So it's a three. He attacks it three ways. Women, last week you got submission sandwich. Two pieces of bread because maybe you're smarter than we are and you get it when you hear it twice. We need it three times. So it's three times. Love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives. And he's going to tell us now very specifically how to love your wife. So here we go. We're going to jump in now and we're going to see how is it that we are called to love our wives. So here we go. Verse 25 is the first one. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Hold on. I've got to use my Big Mac to hold my notes. All right, here we go. First one, verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives, and here comes the phrase, we're going to see this repeated, as Christ loved the church. So point number one, guys, or love, one or one, love number one is this. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And he tells us, how did Jesus love the church? Here's the example. He gave himself up for her. There's his example of love. It's giving up his life for her. And you guys know this means the gospel, but we also know that it's expressed and manifested in other ways, in just his selfless living. In the reality that Jesus left heaven to come to earth, he died or gave up himself. He gave up angel worship, a sinless atmosphere. Then he comes to earth and he gives up food when he fasts. He long suffers with people. He's giving himself up in his life, and then he gives himself up ultimately in his death. And so I want to just draw our attention to two things. This is, this is a good exercise for us men. We should sit down this week with our Bible and a notebook, and we should write down all the descriptive ways or all the things we see in Scripture and how Jesus gave up his life and then figure out how do I emulate that in my marriage. I got to figure out how, what are all the ways, the facets, the characteristics to how Jesus loves the church and then go, okay, what is the way that I can manifest that same love towards my wife? on a practical, everyday level. So that was an assignment. But I want to point out two here really quick that I think are helpful. First is this. Jesus did not wait 
for his bride to see if she needed help before he met it. He jumped in, and again, that word, he took initiative. The, his bride had no clue it needed rescuing. The church had no idea. God's people didn't know we needed to be rescued from sin. And yet Jesus takes the initiative. He's on the move, dying to self before she ever asks for it. Second, men, listen, you should be connecting dots in your head. Second is this, that Jesus gave himself up for his bride while she was still in rebellion against him. So not only is she not asking Jesus to save her when Jesus saves her, she's in full rebellion They're in massive conflict. And yet he comes and he doesn't let the conflict stop him or prevent him or slow him down from loving his bride. He still pursues his bride. Man, there's like a hundred illustrations here, men, of how we should be on the lookout for when our wives maybe need help or need something and we should lay down our lives to do it before they ever ask for it. Men, when we're in conflict with our wives, instead of moping around or giving the silent treatment or self-pity or anger or whatever it is. We're saying, no, we're in conflict. Just like the church was in conflict with Christ. And what did Jesus do in the middle of that conflict? He pursued her for reconciliation. So when I'm in conflict with my bride, I should say I need to pursue reconciliation in order to model for her what it looks like for Christ to give up his life and to love the church. So there's two illustrations to consider, my friends. And then we need to see what is the aim of his love. So he he gives up his life. We are to give up our lives like Jesus does for the church. And in verse 26, he tells us the goal. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there's the goal. There's his aim that she might be set apart or dedicated for God's purposes. Men, listen, not your purposes, God's purposes. We men can think, if I love her right, the end goal is sex. Or if I love her right, the end goal is peace in our home. The end goal for us as we love our wives should be to see her cleansed by the washing of the word to see her sanctified do you think that way guys you think hey my role in my wife's life is to lead her in a way so that she becomes more cleansed by the washing of the word that she becomes more like christ i don't know if you remember this last week ladies we talked about from first peter how It's good and it is right for you to share with your husband in a respectful way gaps you you see between his life and God's word. Remember we talked about, you see the gap, you fill it. You need to talk to him about it. And it's good and right for you to do that. This is the same thing, guys. To wash them with the water of the word, not with our opinions, not with our preferences, not with what we want. This interaction for the loving our wives for their good and for their growth is based in truth. It's based in us men dying to ourselves and leading our wives in a way that washes them with what is true because they need to be reminded of truth. So the husband, or our headship, is not to be used to get our wife to change the way we want her to or to do the things that are our preferences as much as it is to wash them over and over again with what is true so she can become more spiritually clean. 
and not just clean. I love these phrases. I mean, let's not over-spiritualize these phrases, but let's think about them. He says, you're cleansed in splendor or in glory. Man, I don't know if you think about that with your wives. We play a part in making our wives glorious. And then he says, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. He uses such physical language there, like fleshy body language there, that I have to wonder if what he's saying is this. As your wife, sorry ladies to say this, but our goal, men, is as our wives get more spots and wrinkles or any such thing, as they become more blemished on the outside, our aim is to make them more holy and unblemished and unwrinkled on the inside. You get that? Our goal is that as they're getting more spots and wrinkles and blemishes on the outside, we are working hard to help them to be less and less spotted and wrinkled and blemished on the inside. And this is just totally parallel to last week in 1 Peter where it said, Girls, don't worry about your braiding of hair and your gold jewelry and your clothing. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable perishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You see how it goes hand in hand? If, it, if, it, if we do this, we're working together, helping each other become more beautiful on the inside. That's the aim. So let's get practical at a level here, and then I'm going to go even more practical. Husbands, listen up. You and I have a responsibility to lead our wives to finding more and more joy in being set apart for Jesus' purposes as we die to ourselves and love our wives by washing them in truth. And I would say specifically, men, if I'm understanding my Bible correctly, our role is to remind our wives of who Jesus is, specifically what Jesus has done for them what he is doing for them and what he will do for them so that they will be more and more pure, holy, blameless, and free. That's the aim. Men, we should huddle up later and I should read that to you again and we should believe it and try to live it. That's the aim. I want to bring the word to my wife. So what does this look like practically? I think, men, it means we are responsible for initiating spiritual conversations in the home. That is our responsibility, ultimately. doesn't mean the wife can't do it at times, but she should not have to sit and wait weeks for us to initiate a spiritual conversation. She should not have to wait for us to ask, so where do you see our lives not in line with what was preached on Sunday? Men, we should initiate that conversation at some point in the week so that we are applying God's word. Men, we should be washing our wives in the word. And I think that can mean a lot of different things. I think it can mean initiating reading God's word together as a couple. Read it together. Initiate memorizing God's word. Initiate reminding her of what is true. I think you can initiate prayer in a way that will wash her in the word. I think you can initiate reading not just to her, but to your family, exercising your headship, your leadership in the church, your love for your family. Simple. I don't think it's complicated. You got a Bible? You know how to read. 
And if you read terrible like me, I hand the wife to my wife, my Bible to my wife, and I say, you read. But you take initiative, men. You lead. Lead your wives. Help them to see God in God's word. And wives, listen, we will fail at this. I, I cannot remember hundreds of times I've sat down with my family to read God's word to them when they were little and all hell breaks loose every time. Every time. You know, you, you get this picture of all your kids sitting around you in a circle with smiles on their faces with their little Bibles open and you're reading to them and they're asking you profound questions and they want to pray more at the end. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> Primarily because you're dealing with unregenerated little kids. So they don't want to hear it. So wives, please be patient with us and know that I think this is why this is connected to submission because there's this idea and we're going to talk about it in a minute, respect and submission that go hand in hand so that when we fail, you don't beat us up for it because we're trying, but it's hard and it's hard to figure out and we need more than anything, your encouragement, your patience with our pathetic attempts to initiate leading our family, leading you in a way that is helpful. So we, we, need, we need you, wives, <laughs> to respect us and to help us through this. Men, I think a way that we love our wives is we die to ourselves and what we want so that we can release our wives to go to a ladies' meeting. I think that's practical. Your wife needs to hear truth apart from you, so you send them, you drive them, you take care of the kids, you do whatever you have to do to get your, ki- your wife into a setting where she can get help and encouragement from other women. Men, we die to ourselves when we spend and help our wives spend more time with lost people. We're relevant and how? Men, we need to do this. Our wives have a great influence on other women who don't know Jesus and they need us to encourage them in that and to set them up for success in that. This is what it means to equip them, help them, give them the resources they need to to get to a ladies' meeting so they can disciple other women and to get to their friends who don't know Jesus so they can disciple them. We need to do that and initiate those conversations with our wives. Where are you gifted and evaluating their gifts and then giving them what they need so they can act on them. I think this is what it means for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Think about all the things that Jesus does for the church and gifting the church. And then he prepares good works in advance for her to do. That's what we're to do, men, for our wives. Now, what Jesus does next, we're almost done here. What he does next here is brilliant. What God does next is absolutely brilliant. He humbles us men in what he does next because he knows we are filled with excuses for doing this. I'm not good at leading. She's a better leader than I am. She has a stronger personality. I'm too tired when I get home from work. And the lists can go on and on. I I don't know how to love that way, Jesus. I can't do it. You are Jesus. I'm not God like you are. I cannot do it. And we can be filled with excuses about why I can't love the way Jesus loved the church. And so look what he says next in verse 28. Look at this, guys. This 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 should make us laugh when we read it. If you don't get verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, then get this one in verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives, as their own bodies. (laughs) In other words, love your wife as much as you love you. (laughs) So if you dismiss the first one and go, I don't know how to love that way. I could never love that way. I don't have the power to love that way. He goes, oh yeah, you do. Let's change 
Let's change the subject a little bit here. Just love her as much as you love yourself and you'll come closer to loving her as the way that Christ loves the church. I love that. I feel like Paul is just like, watch this, guys. Slap! <laughs> Big spiritual slap across all your faces. You love yourself. You know you do. You do. And so just love her that way, at least. Let, let's move in that direction as your own bodies. Because he who loves, he says, who lo- he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, we're going to talk about that word in a minute, and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. So, men, we are to love our wives in a similar way that we love ourselves. So, number two, if you're taking notes, is this. Love her as much as you love you. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that you don't love yourself enough. Ever. That's not the issue. So this is the middle slice of your Big Mac, guys. This is the middle bread. Love yourself. I mean, love your wife as much as you love yourself. (laughs) Let's love ourselves, men. (laughs) Let's go around and tell each other how much we love ourselves. Sorry. Love your wife first as much as Jesus loves you and now as much as you love you. And he gives us two ways. He talks about nourishing and cherishing. Nourishing and cherishing. So nourish is this idea of providing for, simply put. You, you provide. You bring her up to maturity. You bring something up to maturity by providing the things necessary, by nourishing it. And then you got this word cherish. You cherish something when you love it or protect it or keep it warm. So what God is saying is men, the same way that you provide and protect for yourself, provide and protect for your wife. So when you get hungry, man, we'll talk about the word nourish first. When you get hungry, what do you do? You eat. You get your Big Mac. Buy one, get one free coupon. We have a stack of them at home. It's dangerous. Buy one, get one free. You get thirsty, you get a drink. We get tired or weary, we take a nap. We smell, you take a shower. Shoes get old, you buy yourself a new pair. You take care of yourself. You nourish yourself. You provide for yourself. That means that the man is to do everything within his power, men, to provide for your wife everything she needs to physically survive. Now, this doesn't mean the wife can't work. And it doesn't mean the wife can't make more money than the husband, which happens sometimes. It does mean that the wife doesn't work while the husband plays video games. Sad we have to say that, but in our culture, we do. It does mean that the wife should not be at work while the husband is at home making excuses for why he can't work. There, aren't le- there are always legitimate reasons why a man can't work. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about laziness, men. And then the wife has to pick up the slack. That's what's being addressed here. Men, we should feel the ultimate responsibility to provide for our wives as her head in love, giving up ourselves to provide her with the things that she needs. And I also think it means providing her for things that are spiritual, What does she need to thrive spiritually? What time or resources does your wife need to build up her gifts so that she can do the things God has called her to do? Are you providing her with those things? Are you having conversations with her? Hey, I see your gifts here. How can I help encourage you and provide for you in ways to help you fulfill what God has called you to do? I think we've distorted this. I said it last week that somehow the wife is the helper of the husband and that her existence is to somehow make the husband successful. That's not true. She has gifts, and men were to find those gifts. 
We're going to find what her strengths are. We're going to find where she feels called to minister and to serve and to disciple others and to make an impact in the world. And we're going to support her and encourage her and equip her and provide for her whatever she needs in order to pull it off. And we should be thinking about it and looking for it. And the next one, next one is protect, cherish. We're to protect our wives. This idea of cherish. Guys, you know what happens when you smack your finger with a thump, with, with a hammer, right? You, you crush your thumb. And what do you do? After we say bad words, we start crying like a baby. You, you, you cherish it. You pull your thumb. You pull it to your body. You hold it. You cradle it. You cuddle with what's hurt. And that's what it's saying we're to do with our wives. We're to, we're to cherish them. We're to protect them. We're to protect them from physical harm. It should be there. Okay, illustrations i got to skip over. Physical harm. Men, that is our responsibility to protect them and to protect them, I think, from spiritual harm. If we see things that they're doing in their lives or reading or things they're taking in too much of and we think it's having spiritual harm, we need to lead them in conversations about how to help them to, to avoid that harm, to not keep believing lies that they see on Facebook about the pictures that are posted where the house is perfectly decorated, the kids are dressed in matching clothes on the front porch, smiling as the tree is being decorated. That was one click of a camera amongst an hour of conflict. And you see that click and you think, I suck as a mom. And if you're doing that too much, husbands, we need to pay attention to that and realize that you're being influenced by lies and not reality. So guys, be on the lookout for anything in our wives' life that might be causing harm or derailing them or discouraging them and protect them from that. So we got those three phrases here. Lead, leadership, protect, and provide. And then what Paul does next is he goes full circle, if you will, because he adds the phrase at the end of this in verse 28, and he goes right back to, as Christ does the church. So he starts with, husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So he, he, he sandwiches those together. He puts those together and says, now do it the same way that I do for the church. How, how does Jesus protect the church? How does Jesus provide for the church? So, Men, another assignment. Take out your Bible and a notebook and write down what are all the ways that Jesus provides for the church? What does he provide? And how does Jesus protect the church? And we should go, okay, how are there similarities between how Jesus protects the church, how Jesus provides for the church, that I can now provide for my wife and protect my wife in a way similar that paints a picture of Christ and the church. That's our role, men. We should give the world a glimpse of what it looks like. So, I want to say this. This is a little bit of a side note. Because some of you parents are leading young men and young women. You're, you're raising children. And you need to be able to look your kid in the eye and tell them what the difference is between a boy growing up to be a man than a girl growing up to be a woman. Because they're different. Not just because of X and Y chromosomes, but because of God's call on their life. And this is the answer for the men. This is it. Men, we should be telling our boys that to be a man is to be a servant leader. Servant. I always said that to Caleb. Your role is to serve, protect, and provide for the ladies. I must have said it a trillion times. That is your role. You are to serve, protect, and provide for the ladies. And I would say to him and others, you are to serve, protect, and provide for the ladies in ways that are appropriate for that particular relationship. So the way that I serve, protect, and provide for Elsabeth is different 
than the way I serve, protect, and provide other women. And guys who aren't married, your, your boys, if you're a parent, you should be teaching them and training them to serve, protect, and provide. And you build that into their chest so that they know when dad's not home, I will rise to the occasion. And when I'm interacting with mom, I will serve her, protect her, and provide her. And then when you leave for work in the morning, you look your four or five-year-old son in the eye and you say, son, I'm not here and you will be. You must serve, protect, and provide for your sisters and your mom in any way that is appropriate. Build it into your kids. Build it into your sons. They should know the difference between a man and between a woman and what their call is. Then last, I'm done with this. Paul circles back around. And I love this. He says, therefore, look at verse 31, therefore. So he talks all about marriage. Talks all about Christ in the church. And he says, therefore, basically verse 31 is, therefore, get married. (laughs) That's what he says. Therefore, this is why you get married. This is the reason for marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two become one flesh. That's why you do it. That's why marriage exists. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. There's the bottom slice of bread on our Big Mac. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects or reveres, is reverent towards her husband. So there it is full circle from where we started. For thousands of years, there was something called marriage. Don't read anything into the fact that this is a trash can. It's the only container I could find that would work. Thousands of years, there was something called marriage and it existed. And while it existed from Genesis chapter two, all the way up through Christ coming, there was a mystery hidden in marriage that no one knew. Marriage existed and it was good and it was right, but there was a mystery hidden inside of it. And we now live on this side of the mystery. So we know what the mystery hidden inside of your marriage is. So when you think marriage now, we know what's hidden inside. Right? Don't laugh at your dad. We know what's hidden inside. The gospel is hidden inside. Marriage exists to show off the gospel. And we know that's true. They didn't know that when Genesis 2 happened. God knew it. God created marriage with this in mind. This was not an afterthought. God wasn't walking around going, man, I got to come up with some kind of way to illustrate Jesus' relationship with the church. What should I use? Oh, marriage might work. No, no. He created marriage with this already in mind. He had the gospel in mind and then he created marriage and then he kept it hidden until Christmas time when Christ is revealed and the gospel is put forward. And then he says, look, this is the point of marriage. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Show the world, show your family what the love of Christ looks like in the way that you love your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands in such a way that it shows the world how the church is to submit to Christ. That's it. And so that's why it exists. So if somebody says marriage, you should say gospel. Somebody says marriage, you should think gospel. If somebody says they're thinking about getting married, you should say to them, well, let's talk about the gospel and help them make those connections. If you don't, do you see how empty marriage is? 
This is the foundation of marriage. This is the reason for marriage. You take this away and marriage is empty. It has no foundation. It has no hope. It has no focus. It's all on self. You make me happy, so I'll marry you. You make me feel good about me, so I'll marry you. This must be the ultimate goal. And then we must lead our wives in this. And how can our marriage more reflect the relationship of Christ and his church? So men, we got a lot to work to do this week and the week after and the week after and the week after. But I want to encourage you to get these conversations started your men's group. Get these conversations started with your spouse. We are asking the questions that I already threw out today. And then specifically to keep talking to their wife about what can we do differently in our marriage? Where do we need to change our thinking, our actions, so that our marriage more accurately accurately represents Jesus' relationship with the church? Amen? Good stuff, man. Gives marriage power and hope and purpose and gets the focus off of my selfishness that stinks. Let me pray. Then we'll sing, we'll sing a song. Lord Jesus, I want to pray a blessing over each marriage in this field this morning and those who will listen to this later. God, I pray that your spirit would be active, bringing hope and healing and restoration and encouragement, reconciliation where it's needed. God, that marriages that right now are perhaps focused on things that are not primary, that you would help them to redirect and reorient their marriage in such a way that the ultimate goal is to show the world and the church the relationship of Christ and the church. And Lord, I pray for us as men, God, if we're going to serve, protect, and provide, we need your help. And if we are to serve, protect, and provide, all wrapped up in love, we need heart change. We need your spirit to work in mighty ways in our hearts. God, help us to be men who know how to repent of being harsh and help us to embrace loving the way you've called us to love. And God, I pray for future marriages. Lord, our church is filled with little kids. And Lord, as as they move very shortly into dating relationships and marriage relationships, we pray right now for your protection and your blessing on our children, that they would see our marriages and have a clear example of what marriage should be, and that would inspire them to want to do the same. God, help us. Help our children. Help our conversations this week as we meet in community group settings. Help us this week as we talk with our spouses. Spirit, be active, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.